We'll hear argument next in United Haulers Association versus Oneida Herkimer Solid Waste Management Authority. Mr. Tager. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The barriers to interstate commerce imposed by the flow control ordinances in this case are even more severe than those resulting from the ordinance this Court struck down in Carbone. As in Carbone, no local waste can leave the counties for processing. In addition, now that respondents' landfill is up and running, no local waste can leave the counties for disposal either. The issue here is whether Carbone is inapplicable to this outright embargo merely because respondents own the facilities to which the haulers are required to bring the waste. The answer is no, and the reason is that the concerns underlying the Commerce Clause are implicated whether interstate commerce is being obstructed for the benefit of a public enterprise or a private one. The whole point of the Commerce Clause was to promote the national economy and to put an end to parochial barriers to interstate trade. This Court has consistently held that embargoes, local processing requirements, and other barriers to interstate commerce violate the Commerce Clause because such laws inevitably prompt resentment, retaliation, and ultimately balkanization. I guess in, in, in many thousands of, of municipalities throughout the United States, it's fairly common to have a, a locally owned electricity distribution company or an electrically or, an, or, an, or a gas distribution company. And I thought it was fairly common for a municipally owned pipeline, gas pipeline, or electricity distribution to say, if you live in our town, you've got to buy from us. You've got to buy from a uh, local community, and I guess that's been going on for about 110 years. And yet I've never seen anybody think right or anything that that violated the Commerce Clause. But, of course, there could be somebody in another state who'd like to sell electricity to the people in our town. They can't do it because the town says, we own the company and you've got to buy from us. Now, if we agree with you, are we saying that all those gas companies, distribution companies, etc., are behaving unconstitutionally? The, the first uh, point of clarification on that is, is the question, the, the question is, does strict scrutiny apply? No, I'm not interested in tests. In, I'm interested in just in the outcome. I just I'm, raised I'm the not, question. Yes, I am not. I am not sure that it's correct that in all of those uh, municipalities you hypothesize that they are actually uh, pairing their provision of local services. Well, I used to teach this subject, and I can't say you're wrong. But I knew that it was a fairly common thing to have a, a certification that gave you a, a the company would give them a local area in which they had an exclusive monopoly. And that, that was common. And uh, it was called the service area. And in the local town service area, I never even heard of a company trying to come in and, and sell from abroad because I thought that this certificate gave them an exclusive right to provide the local electricity service or the natural gas service. I mean, it's a fairly obvious thing, and I might be wrong, and I mentioned that uh, my memory, I've never focused directly on it. I just, everybody I read and everything I read, I just assumed the constitutionality of this. But, of course, memory is, is uh, fallible, including mine, and therefore uh, I raise the question. Well, if the utility is, if the utility is, 
privately owned. No, no. I'm not talking about that because I guess that would be trying to attack Carboni, far be it from me. But uh, 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 I, I know at least there are these things called uh, municipal gas utilities and municipal electricity companies, and during the New Deal that was thought to be quite a good thing. And uh, uh, that's years ago. But in all that time when people were attacking New Deal agencies, i never seen an attack based on this ground. Well, I think the, the same logic would apply. It's an article. Yeah, I think it would. The same logic would apply. And it would apply to all of the cases this Court has already held. In every single case involving an embargo or a local processing requirement or a local needs requirement, if you just substitute in public ownership, you'd have the exact same impact well, the fact on, is on the national economy. There is economy. a difference between public ownership and giving an exclusive franchise to a private company. And the uh, public ownership means that the people of the state have decided to have their own little nationalized industry, which, again, people don't like many. But I never knew there was anything in the Constitution that forbid it. Well, I, I think that the whole point of the Commerce Clause was to stop these kind of — Nationalized things. industries? Well, to stop the idea that everything can be localized. That we well, but you don't even have to get into the theory of what happens in a lot of municipalities, of course, is that they — uh, decide, well, we're going to run the waste treatment uh, facility uh, and we're going to tax the people in the municipality to support it and the service is going to be free. Now, is that a violation of the Commerce Clause? If, all the, if they're all only providing it for free and not barring, barring yes. you from engaging in interstate commerce in the event, for example, that you found there to be some additional benefit from engaging in an interstate transaction, I think we would have the Commerce Clause would be implicated. But as a practical matter, they would be able to accomplish much the same thing because most people would take the free service. Well, I don't understand. You know, as, as far as the, the impact on, on uh, out-of-state competitors are concerned, it's exactly the same. The, the state or the, the municipality runs its own waste disposal facility. There is no charge for dumping the waste there. Uh, the cost of it is entirely covered by taxes. Okay. Now, uh, the people you're representing, uh, out-of-state people who, who would provide uh, dumping grounds for this waste, they would charge $9 a ton or whatever they would charge. It would be more than what the municipality is charging. Now, why isn't that a restraint on, uh, on interstate commerce? Discrimination against interstate Well, commerce? it's market participation if all they're doing is public collection and bringing — Oh, I'm sorry. You, you — you, uh, you, you, you have to dump your, your, your waste in the municipal garbage dump. It, well, I, I, if you pair it with a flow control ordinance, I think it's exactly the same. Okay, so that's I, bad, that even, even if they support it entirely by taxes. Yes. So that they're not competing in the marketplace by, in, in any way. They're not getting any money from the people who are dumping garbage. They get money from the whole tax base. The impact on, on the interstate market is the same, and I think that oh, the, the it, courts, it is and the I, courts I, Commerce Clause I didn't think it, you'd be willing to go that far, but you'd say that that violates but the I don't think I — let me be clear. We don't need to win that case in order to win this case, because in this, this case is — Well, I'm not so sure. Is, this case is almost on all fours with Carbone. All, you, all you've done is, is transfer the ownership, as you know, in Carbone. That facility was destined to be owned 
within less than two years from the time the Court issued its opinion. But in the majority opinion, as opposed to the dissent, at least as I read it, on almost every page it uses words like local operator, local enterprise, local proprietor, local business, doesn't speak, as the dissent did, about a municipal facility. It seemed great care was taken in the majority to not characterize that transfer plant as a municipal facility. Well, two responses to that, Justice Ginsburg. First, there were other references where the opinion said the town's facility. Indeed, the flow control ordinance itself referred to it as the town's facility. Um, And the other response is to call someone a a proprietor doesn't mean that they're private. And in this case, they're charging $81 or $86 a ton. Every ton that comes in, they make more money. the cash what I'm saying is that, time at, at least as I read the Carboni opinion, it didn't deal with the public-private distinction. It seemed to assume it was a private entrepreneur and it didn't take a position one way or another whether there would be a distinction. Well, I don't think the Court affirmatively decided the issue. I think the distinction didn't matter to the majority. I think the, the majority is focusing on the consequences of putting up barriers to interstate commerce, of putting up embargoes and local processing requirements. And if you could take almost any one of the Court's cases and just substitute in public ownership. Take, for example — But not — you know, you have a, a whole string of commercial products, but you have recognized, too, that garbage disposal has — for long been considered a municipal responsibility, a municipal function. And you also say that the total, the, what is it, cradle to grave, if the county took over all of the garbage disposal business, the hauling from, from the garbage generator to the plant and then then there wouldn't be any commerce problem, right? But if it does something less, there is. Well, there were two questions embedded there. Let me see if I can take them in order. The idea that it's a traditional local function I don't think can support any kind of meaningful test in this case. The Court has rejected that very, uh, that very standard in Garcia in the Tenth Amendment cases, and prior to that in the intergovernmental tax immunity cases. And the reason it did so is it found that it was unworkable to try to determine what's a traditional government function in any particular case. The Court found that it was in a total line-drawing morass. And so it said, we're throwing that out. Well, there still is at least the obvious distinction that one of the main purposes of the Dormant Commerce Clause is to prevent protectionism. Protectionism is when a state favors its own producers. And you could see, indeed, a big argument in Carboni was you aren't favoring your own producer. Well, we're at least favoring one. But now where the municipality is running it itself, no one is favored. So I don't think it was an object of the Commerce Clause to prevent a state from favoring its own government. I don't know whether the framers considered it, but I do know well, it's about protectionism 
wasn't the only thing that they were concerned about. No, no. They were is there something here that is not protection because Carboni was still uh, perhaps uh, viewing it most favorably an uh, extreme case of protection, though only one individual was protected? Well, first of all, what was being protected was this plan the town had to fund its transfer station, a transfer station that it was going to take possession of less than two years after this court decided the case. So the protectionism that was going on there was really protectionism of their investment and their scheme. But it was also protectionism, uh, I mean, it, I didn't agree with this at the time, but I mean, there, it, it, you, you have to admit that there was protectionism of the, uh, the one licensee, the person who constructed the plant and was going to sell it to the town for a dollar. Uh, that, so far as we know, that person or that company uh, was in it for the money. Uh, and so for the period of the five years prior to the transfer to the town for the dollar, that particular entity was being protected so it could make money and therefore make it worthwhile for that company uh, to sell uh, its, uh, its, its, its real estate to the town for a dollar. Surely that, that entity was being protected handsomely. But it would be equally protected, Your Honor, if the government owned the facility but said, you keep all the tipping fees until it's paid off and they take a nice profit on top, too. Uh, this distinction that Well, the that's, that's circuit, a third case, but that's not the case that we have here, is it? Well, the question you have here is, are you going to adopt a new formalistic uh, distinction between public and private ownership when in the past this Court has concluded that a lot of these other distinctions were unworkable. Counsel, you, you say formalistic if, as if it's a bad thing. Uh, the, the distinction, say, in the First Amendment, if the private contractor, the day before the municipality bought the facility for a dollar, had fired an employee because of his or her political views, you wouldn't argue that that's state action just because the next day it was going to be uh, controlled by the public entity. And yet, the next day, that type of action would be subject to First Amendment scrutiny. It may be a formalistic distinction, but in many areas of the law, it makes all the difference. Well, I, I just think you're going to be walking into so many line-drawing problems, because if that example is one, are you going to require 100 percent public ownership or majority interest, 50-50? Uh, once you go down this road, I think it's just opening an, up a huge can of worms when the focus ought to be what is the impact on interstate commerce. What we have here, now that the landfill is up and running, is an absolute embargo. No waste generated in this town, in these counties, excuse me, can leave the state, period, end of story. It is no different in, in effect. It is no less likely to breed resentment and retaliation all but it's kind of formalistic on the other side because you — I thought you agreed that if the municipality did it through tax revenues and there was no formal flow restriction and yet it only made sense to dump your waste at the free facility, uh, you, you seem to suggest that would be okay. Well, I'm glad you reminded me of that point. I meant to make it earlier. In Westland Creamery, this Court said that those kinds of things make a difference. There are certain ways you can do things and certain ways you can't do things. If you place an embargo, that's traditionally been regarded as subject to strict scrutiny. If you try to do the same thing by making it free and providing public, public uh, 
public collection, that's okay. And, and what the court's cases say is, do it the right way, and we'll worry about the consequences later. Here, I, I take it the reason they want to do this is because they wanted their municipal facility to charge a higher price for the non-recyclable rubbish, and that will encourage people to segregate the rubbish and uh, thereby have more recyclable, recyclable rubbish and therefore overall pay less. And that's why they want to do it. And, of course, that's not going to work if somebody comes in from out of state and charges a lower price for uh, all of the uh, non-recyclable rubbish or, you know, for all rubbish. It just won't work. It's rather like electricity, interestingly enough. Well, I've Where had- municipalities would do the same thing. They want discriminatory rates uh, in order to push out the possibility of poor people getting the electricity. This, they want to do the same thing, but they want to do it for rubbish, for to encourage cycling. Uh, several answers to that, Justice Breyer. One, the same argument was made in Carbone. It doesn't matter who owns the facility. Two, the... This is an argument about why they might survive strict scrutiny. It's not a, I know you don't like hearing about tests, but the, the question here is, do we apply strict scrutiny or not? And that goes to the strength of their interest. And then, of course, the question turns on, can it be met in, in non-discriminatory ways? And the answer is, very well. Since Carbone was decided, the municipalities have been living with no flow control virtually everywhere in the country. Yet recycling has gone up in, in that intervening period. Indeed, the best way to accomplish recycling is to charge volume-based fees to the, to the, between the haulers and, and, and the uh, generators. And that's not what's going on here. They're just charging it at the disposal point. So there are plenty of communities all — excuse me — there are plenty of communities all over the country that are charging what's known as a bag fee, where you pay for each — you pay, you, you get a label that you put on a bag. You can't dispose of the bag without the label. The label co- costs a certain amount of money. None of these people have flow, con- none of these communities have flow control, but there's a direct, straightforward way. They can also impose regulation directly on the generators and directly on the haulers to make sure that they are doing these things. So it, it's, it's hardly a, a reason for creating a brand new public-private distinction. It sounds to me as though if we accept your argument uh, that going back to Justice Breyer's first question, every municipal utility in the United States is going to fall. Well, I'm not an expert on that industry. No, but you know know that there are plenty of of communities that don't have municipal utilities, and they seem to get natural gas, they seem to get electricity, the lights go on. Uh, and, and therefore, by, by a parity of reasoning uh, to what we have just heard, uh, there just wouldn't be the, the justification for, let's say, embargoing the, the importation of electricity and gas uh, by private entities from, from outside. So that if, if you win on this argument, um, no, no more municipal light plants. I, I didn't hear the last No more municipal light plants. Well, I think they can have the plants. They just, you, assu- assuming that it's well, they'd they'd like to to run they'd like them to as have exclusive a monopoly. monopoly, and in that sense, as they a, won't they won't be around anymore, and because the Commerce Clause will will declare them unconstitutional. Well, subject to strict scrutiny, but I, as I understand, you, you would say that they can do it so long as they charge less 
than out-of-state people. Well, yes. And therefore, people buy that. their services because they're cheaper, so long as they don't prohibit the importation. If they run the municipal uh, facility on tax revenues and therefore charge very little for the electricity or whatever they're providing, that's perfectly okay for you, right? Absolutely. So but long then, as they don't then, prohibit somebody from out-of-state. Yes. Then where does your argument about formalism go? Uh, isn't it a formalistic distinction whether the utility uh, 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 does its financing through or its collection through taxes uh, or, or through a user fee? You said, you said distinctions. I thought you were saying that distinctions like that were, were purely formalistic well, purposes of the Commerce Clause, and therefore the distinction, I suppose, wouldn't count. Well, I think what I was talking about, the public-private distinction it's, it's different in kind from saying there are certain kinds of conduct, certain kinds of government conduct that are permissible, like a subsidy, for example. Take the South Central Timber versus Wanneke case. The Court said in that opinion, you can't impose contractually on the people who buy the timber the obligation to process it in the state. But what you can do is you can subsidize it so they'll want to do it. So this is something that has then, then some then then I guess you're saying some formalistic distinctions, some distinctions that don't make any difference economically, but are formalistically different are okay. Well, I'm not sure that one's completely formalistic. The court said there that gives people a choice. They can still take it out of the state if they want to, and they may have good reason to. Um, going back to the trash argument, uh, the trash example, you could provide it for free. But a consumer might say, you know what, I'd like to have more days of pickup than you're providing me. Or I think that trucks of this private company are a lot nicer. I'd rather have them stopping in front of my house than your beaten up municipal trucks. So a case like Wanneke establishes that that's the way it works, that it's okay to have alternatives. What you can't have is forcing people to do this through regulation. Well, I'm, 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 is there a distinction between the question Justice Breyer put to you, the hypothetical of municipal electricity company, in this case? In this case, you have private haulers. You have private uh, waste dumps at the end. You just have a public, uh, publicly owned and mandated uh, processing center in the middle. It would be as if in the electric case you had private electric companies that generate the power, private electric companies that distribute the power, but they all have to go through a government-owned transformer at a, at a fee. It seems to me that, that that's the case you have here. Yes, that's uh, You don't make that. That's not the argument you make. Well, that's I would — That's not yeah. the way you answered Justice Breyer. I like your answer better, Your Honor. <laughs> but what, what I was trying to get back to was — like it, uh, well, but, 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 then, but then Justice Breyer is going to say, well, you can — He changed what, the hypo. That, 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 you, that uh, you, you can bar it altogether, but you can't regulate it just a little bit. You can — The I'd whole is greater than the sum of — I actually point out that California, I think, wants to own the grid and privatize the rest of it. And there are, I mean, he's, Justice Kennedy's totally right. There are all kinds of combinations and permutations. There, there, there could be uh, distributors who are, in fact, regulated private companies and local distributors who are owned by the city. And uh, I guess uh, uh, there, uh, there is uh, uh, one generator, at least, company owned by the, uh, that's uh, uh, 
TV, in, with TVA, they, they make their own. Uh, so, so there are all kinds of permutations and combinations. And I think we're getting at when we take that aspect of the permutation and combination and say that aspect of it, which is owned by a government, says our way or the highway. You know, that's what they say. Buy from us, period. And uh, uh, if you're in a certain region, I've always thought they could do that. And, and uh, I, I have to admit, I've never really looked it up. I've just never come across a case as to the contrary. Uh, I, I haven't seen a case either way. My, my way of seeing this case law is that, there's this, that the rule is simple. If you are doing something to interfere with the free flow of interstate commerce, you're subject to strict, strict scrutiny. And maybe in that situation they would survive strict scrutiny. I don't know that they would in this day and age when uh, getting, getting uh, gas or, or other kinds of power to a, a commercial establishment, for example, is not very difficult and would not necessarily tear up the infrastructure or whatever. I think they might. What I guess we really don't know is whether Justice Breyer's uh, parade of horribles are cases in which the municipality was able to provide the service more cheaply because it subsidized it, in which case there's no uh, burden on commerce, or were they accompanied by prohibitions against competition, as okay. Justice Scalia pointed out. I, I yes. don't know. I think his hypothetical assumed the ban, but I certainly agree with you, Justice Stevens, that if they do it simply by competing, then that's perfectly acceptable. Well, what is your authority for the proposition that we use strict scrutiny? I draw it from the entire line of cases, from the local processing cases, the embargo cases, the local. Can you give me one case where we say we have to use strict scrutiny? For. I mean, I, I, I just you mean didn't the realize term? that that phrase entered in oh, our uh, commerce clause jurisprudence. Well, and the virtually per se. I'm wrong. I, I was using it as, as a synonym for the virtually per se unconstitutional rule. If, if that is to say, if it discriminates. If it discriminates, or some of the earlier cases didn't but use the term. Certainly our burden cases don't require that. Well, not the burden that we talk about in the Pike context, but in the earlier cases they referred, cases like Minnesota versus Barber and some of the other earlier cases referred to it as being burdens on commerce. But what clearly what they meant was there are certain kinds of regulations, and I think it's easier to just <coughs> categorize them embargoes, local needs requirements, local processing requirements, things like that, which basically so obstruct interstate commerce as to require this virtually per se rule. Uh, indeed, Pike itself has that very statement that the, that's sort of the classic case in which you would uh, invoke that high level of scrutiny. Uh, if the Court has no further questions, I'd like to reserve the balance of my time. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you. Mr. Cahill. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, no decision of this Court has held that public service is comparable to private enterprise uh, for purposes of dormant commerce clause analysis. Here, the only entity that benefits from these laws is the government itself. Well, in all the local processing cases, would they have come out differently if those facilities, the milk processing plant, the shrimp processing plant, and so forth, had been publicly owned? I think, Your Honor, they would be different. In each of those cases, the, uh, the laws in question operated to protect a private uh, entity or group of entities 
In Dean Milk, for instance, it was a group of private uh, milk pasteurizers within a five-mile radius of the town uh, city of Madison. In none of those cases was the government itself engaged in providing the service to the public. But what about being a good revenue device for the government to say, you know, let's have our own pasturing plant. We'll make it a criminal offense for anybody to, do, to use a facility other than ours, and we'll charge triple the price. Your Honor, it's I — Not a burden on interstate commerce. That might be. Uh, in our case, that, that is not the case here. What we use is a, is a user fee. We have a limit. There's a limit to a user fee. We can — we're well, can only charge — user fee, we're ten times what it is. We, we have — we can only charge something that's reasonably related to the cost of what — of the service that we provide. Why, why is that? Why? In Evansville Airport, Your Honor, the, this Court held that a, a, a versus Delta Airlines that a user fee is constitutionally limited. There has to be a relationship between the cost of the service and the amount that's uh, that's So don't charged. call it a user fee. Call it something else. Your Honor, if we — Call it a tax ripoff. <laughs> I mean, one way — Then you can charge whatever you want, so long as you don't call it a user fee, right? In New York, Your Honor, you either have to call it a user fee or a tax or something else. Call it a cable TV franchise fee. I mean, isn't that why municipalities used to make a lot of money? They charge outrageous amounts for — to give the cable franchise and then grant a monopoly in exchange. I don't know what what, uh, cable franchises uh, base their their amounts on. I do know that in our case, the cost uh, to tip a ton of waste is directly related to the the value of the services that we provide to the public. To get back to the public-private distinction, what is the answer to Mr. Tager's point that that's difficult to — what if you have a 50 percent publicly owned, 50 percent privately owned company? Is that covered by the uh, uh, Commerce Clause cases or not? Your Honor, I think that the uh, — they would not be — it would not be unconstitutional under the Commerce Clause cases. I think that the — the distinction is that when government is actually in the transaction, when it's taking the risk, when it's spending public money, when it's providing a service directly to the people, it's a public — it's a public service. No, but at the same — exactly, that that avoids the problem. At exactly the same time, it's protecting the private 50 percent interest. If why, a, why isn't the better answer uh, that, in fact, that would be subject to Commerce Clause analysis and that would fall? That if the, if the government wants to do this, the government has got to do it the way the government's doing it in your case. It's got to be 100 percent government. If it doesn't, it's protectionism. Your Honor, I, I agree with you. If uh, We don't have a 50 percent ownership. We don't have any private ownership anywhere. You know, they, there are, however, government uh, agencies in, in, other, in other contexts where there is a, a private partner. Uh, that's a case that, that isn't here today. Uh, but the question was, what if, what if there was? And I don't think the answer is automatic one way or the other. You know, there, there, there's a general agreement throughout the world nowadays that sovereign immunity, which usually applies to governments, doesn't apply when the government is engaged in a commercial activity. Uh, now, why shouldn't something similar apply to uh, government regulation? which ends up discriminating against uh, out-of-state businesses. When the government is engaging in a commercial activity, it is subject to the restrictions of the Commerce Clause. Why why is that a reasonable rule? I think that is a reasonable rule, but I don't think that we're engaging in commercial activity in this particular case. If we were to offer our services to citizens to whom we do not have a governmental responsibility, then I think we're uh, entering into the realm of competition with the private sector. Well, I suppose any private entity can choose its market. 
Pardon me, Your Honor? I suppose any private entity can choose its market. You're a market participant. You're saying we're going to serve this class of consumers. That's your, your privilege. But what you do is you have a market participation, uh, which is sanctioned by the criminal laws. I mean, you, you've built this trash utopia, uh, where, where every, every it's a wonderful trash man. And it's, it, and, and you, you enforce use of that by the criminal laws. So you're engaging in market participant, but you're taking an extra advantage by using the criminal law to enforce, uh, to enforce its use. Your Honor, I don't, uh, I agree with you that we're, uh, we're providing a service here, and we do use the law to require that haulers and generators participate in the service that we've uh, — in the system that we've created. We need to have uh, — to, to achieve the goals that we're trying to achieve, we've asked our public to separate their waste, and we've asked our, our haulers to collect it in a way that's consistent with the programs that we've established. Uh, in, in well, you, you could do that by, by requiring all trash pickup to, to, to segregate uh, uh, recyclable and non-recyclable. And if it's going to cost each householder just as much trouble, then there, there could be competition, and you, you would have achieved your, your goal, no? No, Your Honor. There is no competition between our, our program and the, uh, that's offered by the private sector. What we do is different than what the private sector offers, and there's no place else for it to go. The haulers are uh, required today to uh, comply with the program and, and to coordinate their activities with the separation done by the, by the residents and the facilities that the, uh, that the authority has put together. We do things — we have three, different, three basic differences between uh, what we do and what the private sector would do. The first one is to step in and take uh, some of the risk for uh, proper disposal. When the haulers make the decision about where the garbage goes, uh, that — there's a liability that attaches to the waste. If it goes to the wrong place, it's going to follow the — follow back both to the hauler and to the person who generated it. We uh, had had some bad experiences with people making bad decisions about where waste goes in the 1980s. And the public asked us to set something up so that they could trust who was making the disposal decision. So as a government, we've stepped into that problem. We've stepped into the shoes uh, of the of the generator, and we're trying to set up a place. You could do that by safety. law. You could do that by law. You could specify that only certain waste facilities uh, can can be used. I think not, you, Your Honor. You, I you think don't our, have to run the business in order to assure that. Do you? I think we do. I Why? think because we we don't have the power as a local government in New York to talk to uh, landfills in Ohio or Pennsylvania about how they should run their facilities. The only way uh, that we can be sure that it goes to the right place, that's engineered the right way and built the right, right way and run the right way, is to offer to do it ourselves. And that's what we've been requesting. In answer to my earlier question, I thought you said none of that really matters, right? The only thing that matters is that this is a publicly owned facility. You could be selling hamburgers or renting videos, and it would come out the same way. I think it would, that what, why public, public ownership matters is that it's not discriminatory. I think the strict scrutiny test should not apply when, when government owns Your answer is yes. Yes. It doesn't matter. Hamburgers are just as good. Well, hamburgers, Your Honor, if the government was going to be the, the sole purveyor of hamburgers in a community, I think they'd have to have a very, very good reason. If they had such a good reason, then yes, uh, government could do that. Well, that's, a, that, that's just a question of New York law, isn't it? Of, of I, don't know, I don't know what municipalities can do in New York. You say they've got to have a good reason. I assume you're referring to, to New York law for that purpose. I am not, Your Honor. I have no, re no idea. What are you think. referring to, then? 
the, the, the concept that government might be — might find it's uh, necessary to get into the hamburger business. So, uh, so I can't — So then, then essentially there's just a political check on it. When you say there's got to be a good reason, politically people would get mad if you didn't have a good reason. Is that basically — That's one reason. It would also — There's no Commerce Clause reason. I, I think there's no Commerce Clause okay. reason. Okay. I think there's all kinds. Uh, so what, hey, Hill, you started to tell us three reasons why it was important that you regulate. You gave us one. I mentioned the other two. The other two are, Your Honor, that we are uh, fulfilling national objectives and trying to uh, establish a system that reduces the amount of waste that we generate and recycles as much as possible. That's not necessarily something that the private sector would do. A landfill is not built to uh, discourage the amount of waste that comes to it. Our system is designed to try to uh, change the habits of our citizens and increase uh, recycling. And well, but it's, it's basic Commerce Clause analysis that uh, a state has no interest in what happens uh, to, the, to the product out of state. That's Baldwin versus Seelig. Your Honor, I, I you, think you, you, you can't say that we want that we're enacting this law to affect what happens in other states. That's just contrary to the Commerce Clause. We are not uh, attempting to re- regulate what goes on in other states. We are attempting. I, but I thought that was just the answer you gave to Justice Stevens on your point too. We are attempting to uh, protect our own citizens by reducing the liabilities that they may incur if that waste is shipped anywhere outside of the counties. We hope to give them a better solution for, for disposal than they would get from the marketplace. So, to the extent that that liability crosses state lines. We are trying to protect our citizens from, from that liability. That whether they want the protection or not. Well, they do. And want whether a private individual can come and offer them the same protection for less money or not. Yes, Your Honor, that's true. We're the government, and we're here to help you. Yes. But isn't isn't that a, almost a fourth point? I realize you haven't got the third point out yet, but is, isn't I, I remember your brief, and isn't isn't there sort of a fourth point, and that is. Um, I, I will assume that the government does have uh, some basic health and safety ob- objectives uh, and, 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 and the objective to protect its citizens here. Yes. Uh, if the government tries to pursue these policies uh, solely by private inducement, trash haulers may say, we don't want to deal on those terms. We can haul somewhere else, in another county, another state, whatnot. By taking on the job itself, the government, in effect, is guaranteeing that to the extent it can protect its citizens, uh, induce respect for environmental policy and so on, it will do so without any cessation of service. This kind of an assurance of service plus the objectives uh, that the government gets by, by running the plant itself. And isn't that sort of the nub of, of, of all of your points? Yes, Your Honor, that's true. That is, that is the essence of government. We are there, and we're going to have to stay there. Whether well, a private entity might uh, decide to go out of business tomorrow, government is going to be there to continue to do what we've set out to do. But it leads me also to my, to my third point, which is that uh, we're attempting to implement a comprehensive solid waste plan. With the, with the passage of, of federal legislation on, the, on these environmental matters touching on waste in the 1970s with the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act and with the Comprehensive uh, Environmental Response and Liability Act, uh, there was a new message sent to the, uh, to the country, which to generators meant you better think about what you're doing with this stuff. You better, make a dis- you better watch where it goes and you better 
be careful because liability could attach to you. And RECRA told government, states and localities, that it was their responsibility to come up with plans to find new ways to manage solid waste. That's what we've done. Anytime a government comes together to put a plan together to dispose of solid waste, whether, like ours, it uses several different technologies to try to address different parts of the waste stream, you have to have the cooperation of the people who collect the waste. If the people who collect the waste can simply drive it away to anywhere they please, the plan is no plan. The plan is just a suggestion. Uh, the, the haulers in our — Who mandated this plan? This was a plan that was — the state of New York. The state of New York. Uh, but the state of New York can't mandate what happens to interstate commerce. No, Your Honor, it does. It, it I mean, cannot. If, you're, if you say that the Congress of the United States has authorized discrimination against interstate commerce, then of course it can do that. I, that, is, that is not our position, Your Honor. We're not, we're not saying that RECRA or any of these statutes authorize discrimination against interstate commerce. What the federal statutes did do, however, was recognize that the states do have the sovereign power to act, and they expected the states to act in this way. Let, let, let's take one of these classic uh, uh, discrimination cases involving milk. I think what you're telling us is that if uh, Wisconsin um, adopted a law requiring all milk to be pasteurized at a facility owned and operated by the state of Wisconsin, that would be perfectly okay. That would not discriminate against interstate commerce. That's right. And it would really advantage Wisconsin dairy farmers, wouldn't it? And really disadvantage out-of-Wisconsin dairy farmers. And you think that the Commerce Clause doesn't speak to that? No, I do think the Commerce Clause speaks to it, Your Honor, but I just — our position is that it just doesn't require strict scrutiny. I think the Pike test is a very good test to get to the bottom of why Wisconsin would want to do such a thing. And it would also be a good test to show just what the adverse impact on interstate commerce was and what, in, what precisely the benefits uh, uh, to Wisconsin there might be. I think the Pike test — So then the Commerce Clause would become the vehicle by which we would develop federal law about what's appropriate for municipal governments to do and what's not appropriate. We could decide it may be appropriate to run waste facilities but not to run milk pasteurization. I don't know how we would do that. I don't know how you would do that either, Your Honor, but you would be led into that by accepting the petitioner's uh, argument that public services and private sector services are comparable under the Commerce Clause. Uh, to go back to your example earlier, Justice Scalia, no, we if we accepted that argument, we would treat the public services just like we treat, you know, legislation favoring the private company. You're the one who's arguing for special treatment based on public ownership. I think we are not, Your Honor. I think public ownership and public services are unique and they're different, and they should be subject to Commerce Clause scrutiny, but not but strict the whole scrutiny. Point, the whole point is these are not unique. The whole point is that there are private companies that provide these kinds of services. Maybe water, maybe electricity, maybe those are or are not unique, but you can't say that this is a unique service being provided by government. I think the approach that Anita Herkimer has taken is, in fact, unique. It is tailored to our local situation. It's not something that the marketplace would provide uh, if the government was not there. And if the petitioner's idea that any government service could be challenged under the Dormant Commerce Clause simply because there's a private entity out there that says they could do the same thing uh, were accepted, the definition of discrimination would be changed from uh, differential treatment of economic interests to differential treatment of government or economic interests. And whether we use the taxing power or the police power to support a public enterprise, it would be subject There's to no challenge. There's no challenge to your engaging at the business. The question is whether you can require everybody in the area to go 
through the one facility and pay a tipping fee? Yes. Uh, I would like to close, I think, be, because I'm running out of time, with the just uh, the admonition uh, uh, or the requirement that, that we are, uh, in providing a public service, still subject to the Constitution, and we must deal with the par- private sector fairly. But if we do deal with the private sector fairly, and we don't favor anyone in-state or anyone out-of-state, uh, we should be judged under the balancing test of Pike so that the Court, uh, as the Court below found, the benefits of our system substantially outweigh uh, any incidental burdens that are placed on it by commerce, placed on commerce by the system. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Cahill. Ms. Halligan. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. As uh, you suggested, Justice Breyer, the theory that petitioners would have the Court adopt here is, in fact, a novel one. What they are suggesting is that there is discrimination sufficient to trigger near-fatal scrutiny any time the government takes over to the exclusion of all private actors, both in-state and out-of-state, a government service, that 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 is sufficient to trigger, to trigger strict scrutiny. That is completely inconsistent with the way that this Court has defined what constitutes discrimination for purposes of the Dormant Commerce Clause. The Court has said, and it has stressed repeatedly in its precedents, that discrimination is the differential treatment of in-state and out-of-state economic interests, not government interests, in a way that benefits the former and burdens the latter. That's from Oregon Waste Systems. Let me ask just a sort of simple question. Is there an interstate impact on a a municipal rule, whether it's milk or garbage or what, that says all of this product must be processed within this city before it can go out of state? There may that, well be an interstate doesn't impact. Doesn't that have a burden on interstate commerce? It may well, and, and that is something that is appropriately judged under the Pike balance. And isn't that exactly what we have here? I think that you do have that here, and you should judge it under the Pike balancing test, not under uh, the near-fatal scrutiny that's, that's P- generally. Pike doesn't apply to discrimination. Pike applies to burdens. Yes, Your Honor, and where you Seems have to me that you're conflating the two. Uh, respectfully, I disagree, Your Honor. Where you have the government taking over a service entirely, that doesn't constitute discrimination because there is no local private interest that is advantaged and no burden that is shifted to out-of-state interest. That's what the Dormant Commerce Clause is primarily So long as the government enters uh, the commercial market, it can uh — it can create uh, uh, Fortress California. We're not asking for a rule that broad, Your Honor. What we are suggesting is that where you have a publicly owned operation, a government operation, and it does not disproportionately benefit in-state or local interests as against out-of-state interests. Well, it always does. It benefits the people of the state who make the money from the, from the very expensive hamburgers that are sold by the state of California. It always benefits the state of California. You're saying so long as it doesn't benefit one particular malefactor of great wealth in the state of California, it's okay. No, Your Honor. I don't see the distinction as far as the harm to the national market is concerned. If you were to have government action, uh, for example, someone suggested could uh, the government sell hamburgers, I believe Justice Alito suggested that, and that were to operate to the disadvantage of out-of-state interests, even if it only advantaged one in-state interest, we would agree that that would be appropriate for treatment under strict scrutiny. But that's not what you have here. What both the District Court and the Circuit Court, in fact, found here is that the primary burden 
of these local ordinances, in fact, is on local residents. And so the political process check that this Court has found critical in cases like Minnesota versus Cloverleaf and Wanakee is very much present here. This is not an attractive proposition that these localities have entered into. What would you do with Justice Alito's question? Dean Milk versus Madison. Oh, Milk uh, must be processed within 20 miles of where it's uh, yes, Your Honor. Uh, produced. Yes. Uh, held discriminatory against uh, interstate commerce. Uh, could, uh, under your view, could your city require that all milk be pasteurized within your city at a government-owned, uh, city-owned facility? Uh, if that rule imposed no disproportionate benefit on out-of-state Well, but as Justice Scalia says, it always does because it benefits the locality. It's different you, you to benefit you, you, you have by the criminal I'm sorry. It seems to me you're looking at the interstate aspect from the wrong point of view. I'm a homeowner, and I have two choices. I either send it to the local facility or I can ship it over to New Jersey. And you're telling me I can't ship it to New Jersey. Now, doesn't that burden an interstate transaction? This is very different from those kinds of, of export bans. Those export bans did one of two things. Well, this is an export ban. The export bans that this Court has struck down either create a local — Your case involves an export ban. All the trash has to be processed in your tipping facility. It does. It does. And and to the extent that that's what you're characterizing as an export ban, that's certainly correct. What the Court has found problematic about export bans are either that they are put in place to create local economic opportunities, for example, the timber case or the shrimp cases. That's not what you have here. There's no allegation that the purpose of these statutes is to foster or promote local industry. In fact, the only plaintiffs in this case are local haulers themselves. Well, there is an allegation that you charge above market rates to pursue particular economic goals that the municipal For a different has. basket of services, Your Honor, a basket of services that includes a wider range of, of uh, goals that the private sector has no interest in, in providing. To return, to return to the question of, of whether or not uh, this is an inappropriate benefit for the citizens, I would argue that there is a meaningful distinction between government taking an action which benefits the citizens as a whole, which we would hope any government law would do, any law passed by a government would do, as opposed to a law that benefits a local private economic interest and is intended to do so. For the Dormant Commerce Clause to reach that far would be unprecedented. It would implicate not only electricity, but under petitioner's theory, it would implicate, I would think, for example, government decisions to provide prison and correctional services through a public system as opposed to a private one. What about school bus services, car well, Only you have facilities on your side of the case that are traditional municipal services, but then this seems to be at the, at the borderline. I mean, on the other side, they've got the hamburger cases or the milk processing cases. How how do we decide whether this is one of the traditional governmental services, the police, the prisons, whatever, um, uh, or is it one of these uh, that looks more like regular market participation? Two answers, if I can, Your Honor. First of all, I think this Court has answered that question with respect to waste management more than 100 years ago in the California reduction case. It was clearly held there that the provision of waste management services is an essential 
uh, function that governments appropriately provide. So that's been answered here. With respect to this, this question about hamburgers and other services that look commercial, I think that there are two checks on those kinds of ordinances. First of all, I think it's very likely that in most circumstances, if you were to say that all hamburgers will be sold at a government-operated facility, that that would disadvantage local interests significantly, and there would be a political process check. Secondly, the Court has been clear that it is not bound by formalistic distinctions in the Commerce Clause arena, and so it will look for discrimination that is protectionist in nature, whether it is, as the Court has said, forthright or ingenious. So if a case were to present itself, and the facts in this case carry no whiff of that protectionism, where you were to believe that the motive of a government entity was, in fact, to favor some local private interest, then strict scrutiny might be appropriate. So is that what it turns on, the motive? If the, if the motive here were to keep the jobs at the, the, purpose, at the plant in, uh, in New York rather than in some facility outside of New York, that would, be, that would make a difference? No, I, I think this Court has held that the purpose alone cannot cure an inappropriate means that is used. But what we are arguing is that here you have both a very legitimate purpose, uh, as, as uh, my co-counsel outlined for you. You also have appropriate means. It's not inappropriate under the Dormant Commerce Clause for the government to step in and take over provision of a service. Petitioners themselves agree that, in fact, the government could take over waste management services from soup to nuts. They suggest that there is some difference of a constitutional magnitude because some aspect of that is contracted out to the private market, and I would argue that actually turns the Dormant Commerce Clause on its head. One final point, if I could make, uh, several of you asked about whether or not there are other mechanisms that the localities could use to further these goals, goals which are set forth in both federal and state law. First of all, under the Pike test, there is no least restrictive alternative test, so it's not required that, that the localities demonstrate that there is no other option that might meet these goals. But also the Second Circuit concluded, and rightly so, I think, uh, on page 20A of the appendix to the petition, that there was no other uh, option that presented itself in the record that the counties could address, could use to address their liability concerns and to encourage recycling across the very wide range of there's, products. There's no determinative element in the Pike test, whatever. It is a totality of the circumstances test, right? Yes, Your Honor. That's wonderful. And we would suggest that that, that is the appropriate uh, test here. Ms. Halligan, how do you answer um, something in the petitioner's brief that said that there's really no difference between this case and Carboni because these transfer stations are constructed and operated by a private company. I think that that distinction is essential here. It's essential because of the purposes of the Dormant Commerce Clause. These are publicly owned facilities. The facility in Carbone was privately owned, and as you suggested, Justice Ginsburg, the opinion is replete with careful references to where that. Do you, where do you come out on the 50-50 facility? I think that that's a hard question, Your Honor, and I think that there, uh, the kind of uh, approach that the Court took in a case like Westland Creamery uh, and Hunt versus Washington Apple is helpful. If it appears to the Court that the motive is protectionist, then it's appropriate to apply strict scrutiny. Whether that line is 50 percent, 55, so 100. I thought you said earlier motive was not the test in response to, I think it was Justice Alito. Yes, Your Honor. I'm saying that, that you should look as you have, and I see my time is up, if I may continue. You should look as you have in all of the Dormant Commerce Clause cases at the context that is presented to you. So if 
Thank there you. is a hundred. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Tager, you have three minutes remaining. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Um, the first point I'd like to make is I'd like to uh, ask the Court to review Reeves versus Stake, which is a market participant case. But what's significant there, that's the cement plant case. There's two significant things about that case that I think are of interest. First, the Court's footnote one uh, is an interesting historical footnote about how South Dakota had elected to make a lot of these different industries state-run industries. So the hypotheticals we've been discussing are not completely off the wall. Um, if you can do it for waste, you can do it for, in that case, coal. They uh, wanted to do it for stockyards, but I think the legislature rejected the government's proposal. Um, so the, the hypos are right on point. Secondly, the Court made a point there in rejecting the argument, the constitutional argument, that the State was not prohibiting in, uh, uh, competing cement companies. And I think the inference from that is if it had, there would have been a Commerce Clause problem. Second, um, Mr. Cahill's user, user fee point, I, I just want to uh, remind the Court that in addition to paying for the recycling and everything, they were using the user fee to pay off the bonds for their failed energy recovery facility. So if you start focusing on what you use it for, it's a very slippery slope. Um, on his point about protecting uh, the, the, the generators from liability, uh, we've addressed that at great length in our briefs, but one other point I'd like to make is he's wrong about their ability to uh, determine whether other facilities that the haulers want to use are safe for environmental purposes. That's exactly what the City of New York does, uh, because it doesn't have its own disposal facilities, so it's got very stringent requirements for where the waste can be taken. Um, fourth, Justice Souter, uh, I believe you were raising an, an inquiry about the political process and whether that's adequate uh, to protect the out-of-state interests. And I, I'd like to refer you to the West Lynn Creamery decision where the Court said the, the people whose oxes are being gored by a tariff are the local residents as well. But a tariff is, is the prototypical Commerce Clause violation, so the political process is simply not a good answer to our arguments. Um, in terms of your, your other question about — Tariff is also imposed by a state, isn't it? Yes. As opposed to money goes to the state. It would go to the state. I suppose it could be done by a subdivision, though. Um, on Ms. Halligan's point about California reduction, I'd just like to remind the Court that that was um, a case of flow control to a private company. So Carbone — to the extent that case was concerned at all with the Commerce Clause, and it didn't say it was, it was a takings case, I think, it's been overridden to the extent it had any Commerce Clause implications. Finally, I'd like to end with the point that Carbone has been the law for 13 years. May I finish? Yes. If, if, the, if the respondents have a problem with Carbone, Congress can fix it. That's one of the unique things about the Commerce Clause that's different from other constitutional provisions. Thank you, Thank Counsel. You. The case is submitted.